Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Climate remains vital, of course, even amid the coronavirus. And uh, the European Union announced last week actually that it's gearing its stimulus to pursue climate action. Uh, and there's growing talk also of an ASEAN Green New Deal. So we'll see where that one goes. But countries acting alone will not be enough, and they're not moving fast enough for what the climate science says that we need. Companies also need to do something and they're coming under sustained pressure to align their business strategies with the Paris Climate Agreement. And one of the more successful groups educating company investors on climate risk is Market Forces. It's local uh, and it's and they've um, put an investor motion up at the Rio Tinto online AGM, which saw 37% support. Will Vanderpol is asset management campaigner with Market Forces and he's on the line and it's great to have you with us. Will, welcome. Thanks, Kalia. Thanks for having me. And so how significant was it that a climate motion at a Rio AGM got 37% support? It is a really significant um, vote because Rio Tinto and its board uh, opposed this shareholder proposal and uh, recommended that all shareholders vote against the shareholder proposal. So to see uh, over a third of the company's investors uh, go against that recommendation and, and really call on the company to take real climate action and, and take responsibility for its emissions, uh, including those that are generated when Rio's iron ore is turned into steel, um, is a really important step. So what was the motion put to the floor of the AGM? So, yeah, Market Forces worked with over 100 shareholders to put the formal, I guess, proposal to Rio Tinto that uh, it should be setting uh, emissions to re- uh, goals to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, including those generated downstream. Um, so, as I said, where Rio's iron ore is turned into steel, for example, uh, to set targets to reduce those emissions in line with the climate goals of the Paris Agreement. And so you mentioned earlier that the board didn't support it. If it were put again, and I imagine that it might be in in a forthcoming AGM, would a simple majority of 50% be enough to compel the company to act? How does that actually work, these kinds of motions put by investors? Yeah, it's a good question because it's quite a a tricky process and these are uh, advisory motions, so they don't bind the company to act in a particular way, but really they give investors the opportunity to um, provide that demonstration of of what they're expecting from the company. So we would expect that a vote of 37% would be enough to to shift Rio Tinto and really encourage the company to, to set these emission reduction targets that we're calling for. Um, obviously, a vote of 50% or more would, would be even more compelling, but um, it is advisory. And so, I mean, you know, those that read financial press will know that, you know, I think um, AFR journalists must have a speed dial to, to you and your colleague, Julian, Julian Vincent, because you are quoted quite often in newspapers, um, the market forces actions. Are, are you getting a sense from what you hear from the company that they will actually act? I think there's a sense that uh, Rio Tinto and, and all companies that are 
significantly exposed to, to climate change risks need to act and the best way to act is to um, disclose transition plans and, and emission reduction targets that are in line with the Paris Climate Goals. And so a similar motion was put to the Woodside AGM in April by the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibilities and that got something like 50% investor vote. So do, are you feeling that things are starting to shift, that investors you know, around in Australia but also around the world are starting to pressure companies from the inside to act? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is um, investors are more prepared to uh, be vocal in their demands of, of what they're expecting from companies. I mean, yeah, we saw the, the ACCR coordinated resolutions at, at Woodside and Santos as well, another major uh, gas company in Australia, both achieve you know, 43 and 50% of the vote, uh, respectively. So um, that is significant support for uh, motions that are calling for real climate action. Um, you know, it's great that so many investors are, are supporting these type of motions, but we really need to make sure that those investors realise that for a, a fossil fuel producer to align with the Paris Climate Goals, that means they need to stop expanding the scale of their operations and, and wind up production over time. Uh, and, you know, what we're actually seeing is that Woodside and Santos and a number of other fossil fuel producers are, are planning to increase their production. Um, Woodside, for example, planning to increase gas production by around 70% by 2028. So, um, yeah, investors need to quickly shift from asking for Paris alignment and demanding plans to, to wind up fossil fuel production over time. Yeah, it's a big call. And, I mean, are these ordinary investors uh, voting for these motions, Will, or are they uh, people that are coming together ahead of the meeting and, and you know, or, or buying into companies in order to pressure, pressure them? So the process starts with um, market forces or, or other organisations working with um, individual shareholders to um, build, I guess, the numbers that are required to put these formal motions to companies' AGMs. So in Australia, that's uh, 100 individual shareholders needing to, to join uh, a resolution. And then once it is a formal, um, I guess, agenda item on the AGM notice of meeting, then every investor in the company has the opportunity to vote on that resolution. So that includes... Um, big investors like our super funds and other major asset owners and asset managers from around the world. And, and so that really gives the opportunity then for uh, individual super fund members to, to get in touch with their super fund and say, hey, I've seen this uh, issue is up for a vote at, at Woodside or Santos or Rio Tinto or whatever the company may be, and tell their super fund that they want their votes cast in favour of real climate action. And it's really then up to those big investors to ensure that they're um, casting their votes and, and really investing in a way that is consistent with uh, the interests of their members. Market Forces, uh, Will Vanderpoel's with us. We're talking about some recent shareholder resolutions that were put on the floor of um, big companies, including Rio, Tinto and Woodside and Santos, that got significant support from investors. And you mentioned their superannuation funds, those big um, asset owners and many of us have uh, a stake in these through our own uh, superannuation and uh, are they being effective to move the money will from from uh, more polluting investments to less so 
Uh, in short, no, they're not being as effective and as uh, rapid in their transition to um, a Paris-aligned portfolio, for example. Um, yeah, we see that pretty much every super fund in the, com- in the country, unless it's uh, specifically set up to avoid investments in uh, fossil fuel companies and other environmentally damaging companies, uh, they will own a stake in the, li- a stake in the likes of Woodside, Santos, uh, other major fossil fuel producing companies. Uh, so while those super funds are invested in those companies, they really need to de- be demanding that they're um, winding up their fossil fuel production over time or making the decision that, no, this company can't, can't and won't transition to a low-carbon um, business model and therefore we're going to pull our investment out and focus on those companies that will drive the transition. Yeah, and I, I mean, I was reading that the International Monetary Fund is warning investors that they're not, they don't know enough and companies aren't disclosing uh, climate risk adequately to them. Uh, is that significant, something like the IMF coming out and, and telling investors that they must demand to know more about how... Uh, exposed companies are to climate risk? It is hugely significant. I think it's uh, consistent with calls that have been made over a number of years now. Um, you know, really the, the Paris Agreement in 2015 um, set the, the direction, I guess, of, of where we can uh, expect the economy to head if we are to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And so... Every investor needs to understand what that means for uh, the companies that they invest in. And if those investments are exposed to major transitional risk, that is, you know, they are in industries that need to decline if we are to meet the Paris climate goals, then investors really need to understand that and take action to reduce that exposure to risk. And do you think there's, at the moment, an appetite to have a look at that? I mean, many companies are struggling right now. Uh, it's, I suppose it's not business as usual at all. And there's, you know, a chorus of voices from all over the world saying that our recovery from the pandemic hit, um, the shock should be a green one or a climate compatible one in some degree. Is this getting through to companies, do you sense? Um, I think there has definitely been those calls uh, internationally. Unfortunately, in Australia, it seems that our own COVID Recovery Commission uh, is recommending a recovery that favours the polluting industries of the past rather than a a green transition. Uh, So I guess with mixed messaging here at home, it's more difficult to um, expect companies to get the message, um, but certainly that's that direction of a, a clean, green economic recovery uh, that favours the transition to renewables is what we're hoping to see both internationally and here in Australia. So with, I mean, market forces, you're doing, your, your um, approach is an ongoing one. So 37% support for a Rio motion, 50% on the floor of Woodside. What comes now? I mean, do they, does this continue for each AGM? Are there... You know, what's the next step with regards to raising awareness of this with investor groups? Yeah, I guess there's two different pathways and, and it depends on which type of company we're talking about. So for the, the Woodsides and the Santoses of the world, that you know, their only business is 
producing fossil fuels. There is no sort of pathway for them to transition to a Paris-aligned business model. So the the next step really has to be uh, getting them to produce plans to, to reduce their uh, production over time. Um, for other companies that, that can and, and need to be part of the transition to a low-carbon economy, uh, we'll continue to, to work uh, with shareholders and, and big investors to ensure that those companies are transitioning their business uh, in a manner that's consistent with meeting the Paris Climate Goals. So if that's working with shareholders to propose more um, formal resolutions at uh, AGMs, then, then we'll continue to do that. Um, and we'll also pursue other ways to ensure that companies are bringing their business models into line with the Paris Climate Goals. Well, it's our World Environment Day on Friday. Um, it's good to, to get at least some positive news coming out of climate action and some of the movements that have been taking place recently. Thanks so much for sharing them with us, Will. Thanks a lot, Talia. Uh, Will Vanderpool there, he's with Market Forces and mentioned at the top there, they were part of the group that put a motion to the floor of the Rio Tinto AGM, 37% uh, support for that motion for uh, real climate action. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. This is Reconciliation Week, kicked off last uh, Wednesday. Um, and Sorry Day was last week as well. And I'm very pleased to have uh, Professor Muriel Bamplett back on the grapevine. Jaja Wang, woman, uh, Yorta Yorta woman and CEO of VACA, uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. Muriel runs what is really a vital service that must be highly complex to be running at the best of times, let alone in a pandemic. Um, Muriel's also active in over 30 advisory groups, including the Aboriginal Treaty Working Group. And uh, it's great to have you back on Triple R, Muriel. Um, oh. Welcome. Hello. Yeah. How are you? Yeah, it's great to be back. I think um, reconciliation has got such a um, apt theme <laughs> This year is in this together, so um, I think we are all in this together. Well, that's right. And, I mean, I've been thinking of you a lot, actually, um, because we speak with you regularly on Triple R, not just on this program, but across. But it must be really a highly complex environment to be running the services that you offer under VACA. How have you been um, kind of progressing and, and supporting your community over the past couple of months? Yeah, look, um, obviously when COVID-19 hit, I don't think that any of us had a real sense of awareness how magnitude of magnitude it would be. And I guess if you look across the risk in the Aboriginal community, so we've had already Aboriginal people with you know, um, immune systems that you know wouldn't be able to cope with something like this. We have, an age, we have Aboriginal people that are ageing in our workforce, our kinship carers, and so the fact that it was going to strike, you know, the ageing first, and so we, had, we knew we had many Aboriginal people that are, were isolated, and we still had people that were coming off the bushfires. We have a lot of our Aboriginal people that live in, in lifestyles that could make, make them more at risk, so we, we, we knew we had a real challenge, but uh, I guess what I've been really, really so proud of is how our communities come together. And I guess you would know what it's like through 3RRR, the fact that community get behind these type of pandemics and 
you know, like we've had um, Aboriginal um, social media really um, p kicking in. We've had Aboriginal people set up volunteering, picking up parcels, dropping off, um, um, offering some, you know, food, supplies, all sorts of issues during this this pandemic. And so you, you see the community come to life. And, and I'm, I'm just really, really proud of, you know, our community. But we know that, you know, during this time, organisations such as that, we really do need to as well pitch in. And so, you know, like we've been doing food parcels for elderly families, you know, helping families address still some of the issues. So in the early days, um, it was really about how do we get our organisation ready because on so many fronts we're an essential service. So we deliver child protection, we deliver juvenile justice, housing, homelessness, emergency relief and family violence. So we had to get, you know, 600 staff um, working from home, which was a significant challenge in the early days. Ah, and... I imagine it's an ongoing challenge and, and, you know, we don't know. I mean, today, uh, 1st of June, uh, more restrictions uh, are lifted and uh, fingers mm -hmm. crossed we can continue to have them lifted as the months um, progress. But, yeah, we're, we need to be in for the long term. I wonder, I mean, I did watch your uh, address on, on the VACA website, Muriel, um, for Sorry Day. Um, it was wonderful to see you and it was, um, yeah. You. But I, I imagine that was a pretty different Sorry Day to what you're used to as well. Yeah, and look, and normally it's a really good day. Like um, we've had, you know, days where we've done activities with um, stolen gins, and we've it's sort of our day to welcome stolen gins back home, introduce them to community, and and it, it, it's therapeutic. We were still able to have a virtual one, but I, for me, it wasn't the same, um, you know, and. I think people think that when you're a CEO of an organisation, you've not been impacted by stolen gins. But, you know, yes, I had a mum and, and I had a really, you know, large Aboriginal family of aunts and grandparents and I grew up in that. But I was never to know that there would be so many of my cousins that were um, taken away, removed. And it's only recently that I've met um, some of my cousins and one of my cousins, I see her on Sorry Day and... It's sort of like um, it's such a reunion, but it's so special, but it's just tinged with an element of sadness in that I never grew up with her, I never knew her. So, And hearing her story of what happened to her, whilst she had loving parents, she just um, didn't know us, didn't know her culture, didn't know anything about it. So it, it, for me, it's quite poignant to catch up with her, but I, I guess it's just... I guess a sad time for all of us. Yeah, and I, I um, I mean, we were we were talking actually last week on the program, uh, with um, an SBS journalist around uh, the the Victorian redress scheme for the stolen yeah. generations. Ten million dollars has been made available. Um, what I mean, I, I imagine I do welcome that down ten million dollars scheme. I imagine that you do, but I, I mean, how is that going to play out? Do you think, from, from the VACA perspective, um, with the support flowing to the community and those that that need that money? Yeah, look, I think if you look at the Commonwealth Redress Scheme, it doesn't go far enough. I mean, clearly, a lot of um, what Aboriginal people have dealt with is the fact that they were removed from their families and then experienced huge amounts of trauma. So. Um, a lot of our Aboriginal people are seeking civil redress, and so I think that that brings a certain amount of um, 
acknowledgement and it comes often with an apology. And so I think it, it has all of this has to come with an, an, an acknowledgement and an acceptance that what has happened to the stolen genes, um, particularly if, you know, if with their journey of, you know, going through huge amounts of abuse um, and having to tell their stories, I think it, this redress is such a painful, painful journey for many of our people. And so it is really, really difficult, you know, when a redress team often comes with a very short window of opportunity to apply. So we're hoping that when we do our consultation that, um, in Victoria that we actually come up with something that's suitable, that meets the needs. But uh, I think it needs to really understand that um, our, our stolen genes and our those that have been through institutional sexual abuse really need recourse for what's happened to them. And that consultation is is ongoing, is it, Mural? It's beginning, so it's only in the initial stages now. So it's looking, it'll look at, I mean, the real issue that we have in Victoria is the high numbers of people that were, or children that were removed and brought to Victoria. So we are doing reunions with Aboriginal people that were taken from remote parts of Western Australia, Northern Territory, Queensland, and brought here as children and um, placed in, in foster care. And so for many of those um, people that were brought here, lost records, Many, some of the institutions that um, children were placed in destroyed records um, for fear of, you know, having to pay large sums of compensation. So it's pretty distressing for many to still make, find that, the, you know, undertake their journey. And we know with the current Commonwealth scheme, many haven't signed up to the redress um, scheme. And so in order to get um, redress at Commonwealth level, you actually have to have the organisation that committed or, you know, um, was involved in the um, offence to sign up to the scheme. So it, there are some still, still some really big challenges for victims of um, child sexual abuse. Yeah, and so much to navigate. It's four minutes to ten. Speaking with Professor Muriel Bamblett, she's CEO of VACA, uh, a friend of Triple R, I think we can say, Muriel. Um, we've um, been speaking with you for, for so many years and you've been CEO there, mm. um, gee, at VACA since when? T 2009 or, or longer? Oh, 1999. Oh, yep. 1999. God, I've lost a decade. Well, that, I mean, going back 20 years, I mean, that's this kind of reconciliation week is acknowledging that 20 years ago, you know, the biggest really rally or show of support in the history of Australia was that bridge walk across Sydney Harbour. I mean, what's your sense of where reconciliation is at in Australia today, uh, you know, 20 years on from that? Look, I mean, I guess we live in the best state. I mean, clearly we've got a treaty at the moment. And so I think, you know, the work of treaty. And so from my point of view, um, the treaty offers so many, so much potential. And I think that, you know, like, I think if we're on the right path in Victoria, I mean, it, the reconciliation is also about, you know, the 90, celebrating the 1967 re referendum, which was held on the 27th of May and celebrating the High Court Arbo decision. And I think that those two things set the, you know, footprint for what we have achieved in Australia. But I think, I, I, I do believe and I have confidence that what we're doing in Victoria has the ability to, you know, be equal um, the walks over the bridge. I, I attended the walk in Melbourne 
and and I still talk about the fact that I was at the start but you did the walk and came back to the start and just wanted to see those people that supported us. And I was, my proudest moment was watching a young man who was a quadriplegic. He'd clearly caught the train and he he wheeled his um, wheelchair out of the railway station and marched with us that day. And I thought, a supreme effort to get himself into the march. But he he wanted to you know, show his solidarity with us on that day. And as I said, I think many moments of being proud. Um, and, you know, you may have a few people that are racist and, you know, there may be issues around, you know, get over it, Aboriginal people, you know, we've paid the price. But I, I think most Victorians would stand with us in solidarity about the importance of treaty, about the importance of us as first peoples of this country. Yeah, and I think there was, you know, it felt like a um, a blow to the body. I think for for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people last week with the the, the detonation of forty six thousand years of cultural heritage, and that's you know being subject to inquiry now. That was what happened in WA with with Rio Tinto, and I think that was um, I don't know. I mean, what what was your reflection on that, um, Muriel? Just a complete question without notice here, because it's it's been something that everybody I've spoken to in the last week ha- has been speaking about. Look, I think there um, are some elements are still racism. I think only need to look at America, where you know there's so much unrest over there, and, and so people there's a level of ignorance. There's still a level of you know. Um, and, and I, I, I don't understand um, some of, particularly Western Australia, Western Australia sometimes has harshest policies. Um, you still have, you know, very, very um, horrible views about Aboriginal people and particularly living in remote areas. So from my point of view, I think, you know, like we today we stand in solidarity with people in Western Australia, but we also stand in solidarity with people in America having to deal with, you know, a, a, a tragic death, a needless death, and you know we're still reeling in Victoria. You know, off the end of you know Tanya Day losing her life in police custody. So I think you know similarities. And today, um, I think it's really it, it's we we do need to address issues of racism. We do need to address issues of reconciliation, and we do need to come to you know a just. Um, Come get to a just place for Aboriginal people. Um, very well said. And um, it's really great to speak with you. I'm not sure when it will be that we can have you back in the Triple R studios. It's always wonderful to see you in person. But until then, I um, look forward to you continuing to join us um, via phone. Muriel? Oh, and... oh, great. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Certainly. Well, yeah. Great, well, uh, great service to the community. Yeah, and likewise, straight back at you and all the best with what's happening over at VACA. Um, thanks for joining us this Reconciliation Week. Thank you. See you later. Um, Muriel Bamflett Bye-bye. there. Um, Professor Muriel Bamflett, Jajawarang woman, Yorta Yorta woman, um, CEO of VACA. And, of course, Triple R has had a long association with VACA. Many of you gave to their Christmas appeal the past couple of years, which we've been supporting through the station. Triple we're speaking with Michael Simic, aka Michelangelo, um, about what he's up to at the moment, and there's a lot you're doing. I um I was thinking about you through the bushfire period because I knew you'd relocated to that 
area, it must have been relentless um, for many of the communities around you and, and for you and your young family yeah. living through that. It was. And I mean, the lucky thing about, you know, Sunny was just not quite a year old at the time. And she was actually oblivious, which it really helped us. You know? So uh, where's my dinner? Happened. I want to go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. She's just like, love's good. It's like a smoky day, a non-smoky day. It's all new to me. But, you know, I was talking to someone about it this week and our local community radio was amazing. Like, I cannot express. I mean, ABC were great and the apps were great. The very, the very best coverage came from Braywood FM, tiny volunteer-run station um, with a good listenership locally because they also live stream and everything. They, they've got it together, but they, um, they really had updates all the time, you know. And uh, how are they doing that? that? That's that's quite an achievement to be able to do that from largely voluntary organisations, community radio. Yeah, well, they've got their, their station manager Gordon Waters. It's really came to the fore with it and he's such a lovely guy and so community minded uh but what what he, they had was uh, basically you know the the rfs you know our fire service here would would call in every half an hour and give their update but they'd have people all out on their properties calling in and he'd be going through the information and giving us an up-to-date of what was going on and getting everything second checked so in fact they were more up-to-date than the rfs and were up-to-date updating them as well, because the fire, so many places. But if you if you've got a regional area and you're, you're getting people with properties all calling in and they're they're telling you where it is, and I think you know it it shows that it's a responsible community because people weren't calling in with some sort of you know bizarre um, idea. It was it was all based on actual things that were happening, and uh, and even down to the fact that when when things just you know they were bad for months and. Uh, a lot of local people started just it was almost like these Mad Max brigades as well. They caught, we ended up calling them the mosquitoes. All these um, predominantly guys here with utes with a, a cubic metre of um, uh, water in the back who just turn up people's properties, like 20 of them, and just put them out, put out the fire and say, they'd come unannounced and then go, oh, we've got to go somewhere else now. And they were like keeping on the pulse as well. So there was this whole very community-driven thing to protect each other that was, I've never seen anything like it and that was quite inspiring and made me much less stressed. I think a few days, one day when when the um, uh, satellite had some trouble because um, of, of, of really high winds on top of the hill where it is, and uh, but they got it fixed within you know, an hour or two. But that short amount of time where there wasn't the radio, I realised that was actually sanity, knowing what was going on. Yeah, well, you're a... You're a um a budding DJ yourself these days, aren't you, Michael? <laughs> I, I mean, I know um, because I, I follow you on on Facebook that you were doing a gig with the ABC for a little while. But what what are your next plans? It sounds like that um that community station has got you in. They have. Look, we've been talking. Gordon and I've been talking for a while. I've been uh, saying I'd love to do a show, and, and finally I've just said, oh, "Well, when is it going to happen?" So you start doing it, and perhaps you know even the fact of not having gigs to plan for allows allows me, allows anyone to start making things happen that you wouldn't do otherwise. And uh, I just thought, well, if I had my dream radio show, that it would be, and I, I was like, Australian music. So uh, it's, it's called Australiana by Night. And uh, the whole idea is um, really giving a voice to heaps of Australian artists that I love, but that may not get that much of a spin around these parts. And certainly, you know, they're probably artists that, our listeners would be familiar with, but um, but it's really nice 
just an hour long show. I didn't want to bite off more than I could chew. But um, uh, where it'll feature maybe a specific album or a kind of scene or a band which has a lot of members who all cross pollinate into other bands. So I'm always interested in, in the stories behind music as well as the music itself. So I'm kicking off this week with this album I've loved for years called Buried Country, which was a anthology put together uh, by Clinton Walker of uh, Indigenous uh, country and roots. Because he made, it came out about 20 years ago, but uh, but I've stayed loving it. And um, I know some people know it and love it too, but I've realised I didn't know any of this music before I heard that, and still a lot of people don't. So I'm going to trip through a whole lot of those great artists. A lot of them aren't with us anymore, but a few of which you are, which is great, you know. Yeah, I feel um, I feel like I'm just um, with my people right now because we had Roger Knox and um, Clinton. Oh, yeah, we had um, – oh, gee, it's going back because it was when um, Donna Morabito was my co-host and she was all over it. She loves that music, Aboriginal country yeah. music. Yeah. And they came in and I think we had him for an hour or something. I'd have to dig that up um, from the archives. That's Must be going about seven years or something. I don't know. Um, I'll have to dig it up now too and, and, and play yeah. But before, um, I realise I'm like 10 minutes till the end of the grapevine this morning. We're speaking with Michael <laughs> Simic. Okay, Michael and Jay, I want to talk about your other stuff you're doing. Um, you've got yeah. some online sessions to tell us about and I've got a, a track of yours that I want to play as well that you've um, yeah, look, kindly given us. Yeah, look, it's just so easy to talk to you. That's the problem. We I know. Don't we have an hour? Next time we'll put an hour in. Yes, please. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but Roger Knox is a beautiful singer. But, um, but yeah, look, I, I've, I've been writing so much. Uh, I've always liked my a lot, but I guess you know it, it takes a while to get your albums out there when you're touring a lot as well. So you get an album every couple of years. But but just last week I've launched a Patreon, uh, which again I've been kind of thinking about doing for years. But I've suddenly had the time to work with a friend on the back end of it, and and just and you know that just music directly to the people who are into your music is just a, a beautiful thing. I overcame all my my fears of oh, no one's going to sign up. It's going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> and just was like, just do it. And it's uh, it's so lovely to just go, wow, I'll do a live stream gig each week. I'll share a new recording each week. And for me, that sort of creative development's wonderful because otherwise I'll just keep writing and God knows what I'll do with all the songs. They just end up piling up. So how do people tune in and, and jump on your Patreon, Michael? Oh, so it's simple. It's just patreon.com slash Michael Simic. So, yeah, for anyone who knows me as Michelangelo, uh, I still am doing Michelangelo with the Black Sea Gentlemen, my long-term band, who turned 20 at the end of the year. But becoming a dad and just, you know, living in the country, my whole life's changed so much, and it just felt very natural to perform under my own name now. And it doesn't mean it's suddenly, you know, Italy boring, I'm not going to have any fun with the performance, but it certainly is allowing me, I think, a new kind of vulnerability, my, my, uh, which... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess I've, I've often gone into the entertainer mode, which I really love, but it's really nice to allow other sides of myself out. Yeah, I, I think do you still do the hair? Different. Tell us you still do the hair. Uh, yeah, I still do the hair, oh, of course. <laughs> but that, that said, uh, I do like the hair going a little wild now, and I get David Lynch now, the way he goes both quiff and wild hair, you know, and I think there's room for both in your life. <laughs> So I'm going to play a track that you've shared. It's unreleased, I understand. It's called Like That. Yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit, of, give us a bit of an intro before we say goodbye. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, look, I've been writing a lot of songs and half of them seem to be lullabies and the other half seem to be very groove-based songs that allow me to tell a story over a groove. And uh, and what can I say is that Sunny likes dancing to this one. She's got a good little action that goes up and down to it. So if you, if you like grooving to it, go right ahead. But, yeah, I go out to my creative caravan a lot of nights and just write what comes out and songs like this come out, my little reflections on the world. 
Well, good luck with your radio show. Um, thanks for speaking to us on Triple R. We, we uh, miss you, but, you know, we can live through your music and that's um, always good. Oh. And it sounds like we can tune in to you as well um, on the interweb. So, yeah, exciting. That's right. Days. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, thanks so much for chatting. No worries. Uh, Go and get your groceries. Okay, bye for now. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Michael. Really great to speak with you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.